We're continuing uh, our series, our summer series on the God who is. We're looking at different aspects of God's character, his nature, his works, um, with the hopes that we might get to know him better and then respond to him uh, as we live, live for him. Genesis 3, verses 9 to 19. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God then said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I don't know if you're a reader of the the Wall Street Journal, but... I had a, an article forwarded to me this past week by, by a friend, one of our, our members here at the church. Um, there was an article last Sunday in the Wall Street Journal that chronicled the most recent high-profile instance of where the Me Too movement has touched the evangelical church. It involved... Willow Creek Community Church, which is a very large church outside of Chicago, uh, and it's Pastor Bill Hybels, who is arguably one of the most influential leaders in in the evangelical church over the last three decades. The reason I mention this to you is not to somehow throw uh, Bill Hybels or, or Willow Creek under the bus. I simply mention it to highlight the importance of understanding the significance of this passage this morning. I don't think we can have anything close to a proper understanding of life and of ourselves if we don't understand sin. It's interesting to me that that back in the 1970s, there's a very, very renowned psychologist named Carl Menninger wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. The book is very interesting to me for a number of reasons. One is that Carl Menninger was not a particularly religious person. 
He was essentially Freudian in his understanding of psychology. He is, he is viewed by many to be, uh, if he's not the father of, but he was very instrumental as a leading voice in what we would call modern day psychology today. And so he was not, he was not, you know, coming from a bastion of conservatism or traditional thinking necessarily. He was just pioneering within the world of psychology back in, back in the 60s and 70s. The book that I'm referring to, Whatever Became of Sin, was a book that he wrote in 1973, which is very late in his career. Carl Menninger died at the age of 96 in 1990. What that means is that when he wrote this book, when this book came out in, in 1973, he was either 79 or 80 years old. And what's interesting to me about that is that Typically, when you have someone who's a scholar or you have someone who's a practitioner of, in, in a particular field of expertise, it seems logical to me that, that when they get toward the end of their, their career and their end of their journey, they might be more reflective. You know, they might, they might be inclined to say, well, you know, as I get to the end of my career and the end of my, my contribution to this field, let me, let me share with you some of my parting thoughts, the lessons that I've learned, the things that have stood out to me. And what he says at the end of his professional career in psychology essentially is this. If you don't have room in your understanding of, of life and of who you are for the concept of sin, then you will not understand yourself. What he said essentially was, if you don't believe in sin, if, because he, he was writing in a time... When people were starting to say, you know what, sin is negative. Let's don't talk about sin. Let's don't talk about right and wrong. Let's just be positive. But he said, if you don't talk about sin, and if you don't understand that there is a real thing in life called sin, then you, you'll not be able to, to survey life and make discerning statements about things that are right and that are wrong. And if you can't ever say that something is wrong then A, you'll never be able to correct anyone because you'll never be able to go and say, hey, you know what, I think what you're doing there is wrong. Well, how can you say that if there's no such thing as wrong? And if there's no such thing as wrong, not only can you, can you not pronounce discernment in, in life about things that are right and wrong, you also have no motivation to change, to change yourself or to, to try to affect change in other people. Why would you? Nothing's wrong. Right? If everything about your life, if, if, if everything is right, if nothing is wrong about your life, then why would you ever seek to change? So here's, here's what he says, and this is, this is so profound to me. This, 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 the, this is actually a quote from him. He, he reached that conclusion. He said, if, if, if you don't have room for sin in your understanding of life, then, then no one has any right to say that something is wrong and there's no justification to seek to bring about change. In, in your life or in anyone else's life. And basically, at the end of it, he says, that would be preposterous. That approach to life would fail the test of practicality. It wouldn't work. And so he goes on and he says this, to know thyself. Keep in mind, he's writing in, in the midst of a generation where they coined the phrase, I want to get to know myself. I want to find myself. In the 70s, he says, if you want to know yourself, 
then knowing yourself must mean to know the malignancy of your own instincts. The malignancy of your own instincts. Now, when I say the word malignancy, what comes to your mind? Cancer. Do you realize what he's saying? He says, if you want to know yourself, if you want to understand yourself properly, then you have got to understand the cancer of your own instincts. Sin is part of reality. And so in our text this morning, we're going to see the heart of sin. In other words, the source of it. We're going to see the scope of sin, how broadly it reaches into into our lives and into the world. And then, most importantly, I hope that we'll see this amazing this amazing development, I hope, it's, I hope you think it's as amazing as I do, this proactive statement that God makes, a promise, as he begins to reveal his plan to rescue us. He's pursuing us. Even as we're mired in our sin, he is pursuing us. He is coming after us, as we've just been, been singing about. So let's start with, with the heart of sin, the source of sin. Now, by having us read, starting at verse 9, I I made an assumption that most of us are familiar with the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 3. And that may not have been a fair uh, assumption for me to make. And so if if the first eight verses of Genesis 3 are not really familiar to you, uh, by all means, grab the the Bible that's in the pew rack there with you, or get on your, your phone, or whatever you need to do to access your scriptures, and, and go ahead and read them. You're not going to hurt my feelings if you put your head down and read verses 1 through 8. I won't be up here saying, hey, you're not paying attention to me. No. Go be familiar with, with the first eight verses. They're, they're that important. But essentially, what, what happens in verses 1 through 8 is it's, a, it's the narrative account of Adam and Eve as they represent us. They commit the first sin in the history of the world. A few weeks ago, I, I said in, in a message that, that in essence, this first sin that Adam and Eve committed was basically a power grab. Because the serpent said to Eve, he said, if you eat of this from the fruit of this tree, you will be like God. That's a, that's a, that's a grasp for God's power. But it's not only a power grab. I think in many ways it's also an authority grab. God says that that everything here in the Garden of Eden, paradise, everything here is available to you except this one little tree. You got it all except for this one thing. You must not eat from that. But Adam and Eve together at that point defied their maker. They defied his authority. And I'm going to talk just in just a little bit about the scope of sin, but but before before we do that, I, I want to talk in terms of the heart of sin. And in terms of the heart of sin, the Bible teaches that from this first sin, after this first sin took place, everything changed. And not just for Adam and Eve, but it changed for every human being that would ever live after them, including us. 
The Apostle Paul just talks about it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says that just as sin entered the world through one man and death entered the world through sin, in the same way, death has come to all mankind because all have sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was introduced into our DNA a trait a trait that has since been passed down to every human being, it's the trait of sinfulness. It's the trait of a malignancy in our instincts. And we all have it. Just two chapters later in Romans chapter 7, the same Apostle Paul describes his experience of this trait in his own life this way. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The good things that I want to do, somehow I can't do them consistently. And the things that I don't want to do, the things that I want to stop doing, I keep on doing them. That's me and you, isn't it? Do you see yourself in this mirror? Jonathan Edwards came along in the 18th century as if, as if Paul's description of his experience and our experience in this isn't, isn't bad enough. Jonathan Edwards came along in the 18th century and said, actually, Paul, it's even worse. Because Edwards appealed to, to the truth that, that is, that is read in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, where Isaiah the prophet talks about even our best behavior as being like what? Filthy rags. Isaiah said, even the good things we do, even when we're on our best behavior and we put forth the best performance we possibly can, even that is contaminated by sin. And so Edwards writes this this book called The Nature of True Virtue. And, and it's a, well, if you tried to read the quote, by the way, I put a quote from, from this, this work of Edwards in the, the, the reflections part of the, the beginning of the worship guide just to stimulate your thinking. And, and I, I don't know your life, but I almost guarantee you, if you tried to read it, you probably scratched your head and said, what in the world is this? It's really hard to understand. I, I, I put the quote in the bulletin. I emailed it to the folks in the office. And I had, I had the folks in the office kind of coming back to me saying, did you get this right? This does not make any sense. We've had three or four different people read this and nobody understands what it says. And I said, yep, you got it right. Here's the, here's the even worse. The whole book is like that. It's, it's really hard to understand. It's very rigorous. I think this is pretty telling. The book wasn't even published until after Edwards died. I think it was up to Edwards. He probably wouldn't have published it. But it was an essay that he wrote, and it's a very logical, rigorous, full of if, then, and, and lots of, I mean, there's a, th- at the beginning of it, it starts, so you know you're in trouble when you open a book and the first two pages are a glossary of terms that you're going to need to understand in order to read this book. And that, that's what's at the beginning of the book. So, but, but in this, let me, let me try to distill it to you, essentially what, what, he, what he says. 
He basically says that most of what we call virtue is rooted in either pride or fear. Our best behavior is rooted in either pride or fear. So that that, that much of our, our good performances or our good behavior is is motivated by us saying things like this. If I if I behave this way, then maybe people will respect me. If I do this, then then people will know that I was raised right, right? They'll, they'll, they'll know that I'm an intelligent person, or they'll know that I'm a moral person, I'm an upright person. Maybe they'll say of me that I have my act together, or they'll hold me up as someone who's, who's like, a, like an example to be followed. I mean, wouldn't you love to have someone say, wouldn't you just love to overhear somebody saying this about you? You know, look at their life. You should be like them. Wouldn't you love to have somebody say that about you? You know what that is, Edward says? Pride. When we behave well for that reason, that's virtue motivated by pride. But he said, but there's another way that we motivate ourselves to to behave well, and that's fear. Because we say, well, if I don't do what's right, then people will think ill of me. If I don't do what's right, then I could lose my job. Or if I don't do what's right, then my spouse may not respect me anymore. I could, you know, or depending on the nature of, of the behavior that we're talking about, I could even lose my spouse. Or financially, it could ruin me. So you've got pride as a motivator. I better live this way so that people will respect me, so that people will think well of me. Or I better not mess up because of what I could lose. Edward says that the vast majority of of what you and I call virtue is motivated by those things. Now, before you just dismiss all that, Edwards also says that that's not all bad. Because he says most of the virtue that you and I see in society is motivated this way. And by the way, he says, this is frankly what is keeping our society from going to hell in a handbasket. Our world is full of people who are trying to behave well, either out of, out of pride or out of fear. And actually, it's keeping our society from being as bad as it possibly could be. But he said it's not truly virtue. It's sin management. It's, it's fabricating virtue out of pride or out of fear which is really fabricating virtue out of sin he also goes on to say that what we really need is true virtue true virtue is is not rooted in pride or fear It's not rooted in a pursuit of respectability or security. True virtue comes from knowing that in Christ, all of our shortcomings, all of our sins have already been covered and forgiven. And that God already esteems us. He already thinks highly of us. He loves us. And he has already declared us to be righteous. 
And that ought to set us free from our guilt and the fear of rejection and condemnation. Do you understand that if you're trusting in Christ and Christ has atoned for your sin, then God already has as high a view of you as as he possibly can. He calls you righteous. He says you're worthy because you are clothed in the righteous record of Jesus. So he can't think more highly of you than he already does. And he gives us this promise. I will never withhold my love from you. I will never reject you. I will never turn away from you. I will never leave you or forsake you. So what do you have to fear? That's the antidote to what what Edwards calls common virtue, which is generally you know motivated by pride or fear. And he says this is true virtue. Another another risk, by the way, of of living by common virtue is he says eventually for a lot of people when you're when you're trying to fabricate good behavior and a good performance rooted in pride and fear sooner or later there's a very good chance that there will come another source of pride or another source of fear that will become more weighty to you than than has been the other ones and it may cause you or lead you into some other kind of sin And frankly, I wonder if that's not what we're seeing in our society when we have these people who, from our vantage point, seem to be very successful, even very virtuous, and all of a sudden they get a little further down their career or further down the path of their life, and all of a sudden it seems like they do something that is completely out of character, completely out of accord with what we perceive to be their their character or their nature or their personality and then they do this weird thing and it's like where'd that come from edward says that that those things happen because maintaining a life of character rooted in pride or fear is very hard to sustain all right well from a gospel standpoint, maybe we could be done, right? We, you know, we've, we've talked about where, where true freedom, where true virtue can, can come from. Um, but I'm not through my outline yet, and so I'm not ready to be done. So, so let me touch very quickly on, on these other two points. First is the scope of sin. Do you see, do you see how the various ways that Adam and Eve's sin has impacted their existence, their experience of, of their life? It impacted their relationship with God. We see it in, in verses 8 and 9 where, where God now comes into the garden the way apparently he had been doing every day. He comes into the garden, but this time Adam and Eve hear God coming, and so what do they do? They hide. They had never hidden from God before. But now that sin has come into the picture, it has alienated them from the God who made them. That's the first change that we see. Secondly, we see that that it impacted their relationship and their understanding of themselves. They've become aware of their nakedness, and they experience shame. You do realize, don't you, that this is not the first time that they were naked. They've been naked all along. They have never had a stitch of clothing on them their entire lives. And they've been fine with it until today. Until this day, right? Now they realize they're naked and they're ashamed of it. 
So the sin has, has now affected the way that they see themselves, the way that they relate to themselves. We saw that in verse 10. It's also impacted their relationship with one another. You see that in a couple of ways. First of all, you see the very first occasion uh, uh, for blame shifting, right? You see Adam. God says, did you eat from the tree that I told you you're not supposed to eat from? And first thing he says is, well, the woman that you gave to me, she, you know, if there's ever been a case of, of handling it like a man, it's here. And Eve blame shifts too. Well, how about you, Eve? What about you? Well, the serpent, you know, I couldn't resist. So, so the blame shifting is a part of, of the, the, the broken relationship with, with one another. And then this, and then this may be a little more subtle, but, but many, many commentators believe that, that when God pronounces at the, in the second half of verse 16, where he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Keep in mind, that's a pronouncement of the fall. That's a pronouncement of part of the curse. This is not God describing, well, let me tell you how I made you. Let me tell you how you're, you're supposed to perform and you're supposed to behave. No, this is, this is a result of the fall. And many read this and, and they say, this, this is where we get some abnormal tendencies in our relationships between men and women, where you start to see women who, who are going through life as if they need a man. That's where this comes from. Or you see, you see in, in it, perhaps it's a foreshadowing of the idea that many men in their relationship with, men, with women somehow feel this need to dominate, to exercise power over them. That's not what we were made for. That's a result of the fall. So you see, you see things like that creeping in to the picture. We see also that, that this sin impacted their relationship with, with creation and with nature. You see it in, in the pronouncement to Eve that you will experience pain in childbirth. You see it in the pronouncement to Adam where, where God says, you know, you're, you're going to try to make your living by harvesting nutrition from the ground. But guess what? The whole time you're doing it, you're going to be trying to separate the fruit and the vegetables from the weeds and the thorns and the thistles. And I think that's a, an allusion to all kinds of other issues with creation and nature. And then ultimately, death. In verse 19, God says, you're dust. You came from the dust. From now on, you will return to the dust. Death has come in to our experience of this life as a result of this sin as well. So that's the scope. At least, at least give you a glimpse of the scope. This idea that there is not an area of our life that is not contaminated by sin. But here's, here's the best part. I hope, I hope that you will, you will agree with me that it's the best part. That even as God is pronouncing the various aspects of the curse, God cannot contain His innate desire to redeem His people, to redeem the creatures that He's made. In verse 15, He lets it slip out. He discloses His proactive promise of a Savior. 
He's speaking to the serpent, who is essentially he is Satan incarnate. Satan in, 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 a, in a form of a body. And he says, I will put enmity, I will put strife, conflict, war between you and the woman, between her offspring and your offspring. And he says, you will essentially nip at his heel, but the offspring of the woman is going to crush your head. Bible scholars call, call this the, the proto-euangelion. That's not going to be on the quiz. It, it's, it's simply a, an English transliteration of a, of a Greek or Latin word that means the first gospel. You know the name of our church is Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's not catchy. First time I ever came here, I couldn't even pronounce evangelical. I'm thinking, so what's the evangelical? I, I don't get it. But it's an important word because it, it's a, it's a, it refers to the Greek word that means to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news about the Savior, about salvation. And so the first announcement about the Messiah appears right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's the proto-euangelion. Now, the passage itself does not tell us who the offspring of the woman is. But I think that, that that's, that's actually intended to become the mission of reading the rest of Scripture. That once you see this, you say, okay, the seed of the woman, the, the serpent is going to strike at his heel, but the seed of the woman is going to crush Satan's head. Who is this seed of the woman? Who is the offspring of the woman? That's what you're supposed to be asking as you read the rest of Scripture. And if you read the rest of Scripture... What we learn is that the offspring of the woman who will crush Satan's head is Jesus Christ. That's who he is. Here's the point. And the reason that that the message today is titled the way it is, is because before God's pronouncement of the curse has even fully left his tongue, he is already pursuing us. He is already plotting. He is already planning. He is already implementing our redemption. I I don't know that it's intended to be humorous, but my kids will tell you that I am a horrible joke teller. Because while I am setting up the joke, my face starts to change. Because I'm anticipating the punchline. I know what the punchline is going to be. And I'm anticipating that this is going to be great. It's going to be funny. And so I haven't even gotten to the punchline yet. But my face is starting to smirk. I'm starting to give it away. And they say, Dad, you're horrible. You cannot tell jokes. Okay, I'm fine with that. But, but the reason I tell you that is I think God is like that. God is, is announcing the curse to Adam and to Eve and to Satan. And he's declaring all these horrible consequences that are coming from sin. But he's not even finished outlining all the, the aspects of the curse. And his face starts to change. Because he can't keep it in. I'm coming after you. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to make you whole. 
Here's my question to you. Do you see God like this? My concern is I think so many people, when they think about what God is like, they see God who is up in heaven and he's disappointed with us. And he's frustrated with us all the time. And all he wants to do is correct us and tell us about how we're disappointing him and how he's let us, how we've let him down. That's not the picture of God that we see in Genesis 3. I know we hear the curse. I know he, like, like all good parents, if you will, he, he delivers the consequences for the sin. He cares about it. It's not unimportant. But he can't even get through the pronouncement of the consequences without getting excited about the plan to make it right. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? There's this man, he has two sons. The younger son basically is in rebellion. He says to his father, hey, hey dad, let, let's, let's just cut to the chase here. Let's pretend that you're dead. You give me the part of the inheritance that comes to me and I get on with my life without you, okay? It's a parable. I don't know any real dad that would say, oh, all right. But this dad does. The father in the parable of the prodigal son says, okay, as you say. And so he gives the younger son the portion of the inheritance that comes to him. And and the the younger son basically says, peace out, I'm going. And he does. And and you know the story. He goes off and he basically squanders everything. He has a good time, a lot of parties, a lot of spending, a lot of indulgence. But he gets to a place where he's got nothing left. He has no place to live. He has no possessions. He has no resources. He finds himself literally feeding pigs so that he can eat part of what they're eating to sustain himself. And and he has this eureka moment where he's sitting there in the pig pen and he says, you know what, it would be better to be a slave in my father's house than to do this. So he decides, I'm going to walk back home. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to beg and plead and see if he will allow me to be a slave in his house so that I don't have to live the rest of my life like this. And so he does. And so he begins his journey back to his father. But before the son even gets close to his father's house, the father is described for us essentially as being on the front porch, watching, waiting, hoping that his son will return. And before the sun can even really see the house, Jesus says the father hikes up his garments and begins to run to his son. That is our God. He knows our sin. He knows the malignancy of our instincts. He knows that that malignancy has poisoned everything about us. And even when we were still in our sin, he ran to us, giving his own rightful son in order to buy us back. May we see God this way, the God who comes after us because he loves us. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we see here that sin is serious. It's, it's, 
it's part of our lives. It's part of this life and our experience in this world. And so it's real. And we try to mitigate it by prideful and fearful means. What we truly need is to be set free. And we thank you that you know our condition. You know the cancer that is our sin and our sinfulness. But you've loved us. In fact, you have not been able to contain your love for us. That even as you declared the consequences and the curse of sin in Genesis, you were already planning and revealing your plan to redeem us, to buy us back, to bring us into a restored relationship with you. We thank you that that even as we were in our sin, you sent your son Jesus to be our savior, to be the one who would redeem us and atone for our sin. Help us, Lord, to see that, that you love us, you already esteem us, and that you will never leave us or forsake us, that we need not pursue prideful means for virtue or even fearful means for virtue, but we can simply be free to experience your grace and your mercy and to love you back. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to love you and to love what you love, but to live in light of this great truth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.